devilish spells curse her, and wagged their unkempt heads as haystacks and livestock crashed through their thatches, and asked each other in fearful whispers whether such raging fury of the elements portended the end of the world, or the second coming, or another bloody wet week, and agreed that it was Allah happening gossip, and where would it end? Well, that takes care of the weather, and before meteorologists start hunting through their almanacs for the date of this monumental tempest, we shall tell them that it befell on a certain February the 2nd, but make no mention of the year, save that it was sometime between the foundation of Kiev University and the discovery of Spitsbergen, and they can make what they will of that, my masters. Why such reticence? Because... The moment a romantic storyteller starts committing himself to actual years and similar pretensions to strict historical fact, his character is gone, being at the mercy of nitpicking critics, who will take gloating delight in pointing out, for example, that Attila the Hun couldn't possibly have studied Monteverdi's second madrigal book because it hadn't been published in his day, see? Nor were pretzels available in the Forty-Five Rebellion. Out upon them, pedants. Another reason is that many of the principal characters in our little moral social fantasy wouldn't have known what year it was anyway, they being carefree primitives chiefly concerned with sheer survival, clobbering their neighbours, armed robbery, animal, other people's animals, husbandry, protection racketeering, arson, kidnapping, irregular warfare, and general mischief, all of which being natural poets they described as shifting for a living. Now and then they pondered about which religion they ought to belong to, inevitably deciding that on the whole they'd let the hereafter take care of itself, thus freeing themselves for any amount of boozing, guzzling, dicing, hunting, racing, and swiving, this last being a popular pastime of the period, and still carried on today under a variety of names. Indeed, they were a stark and ignorant lot, and if you'd asked them what day it was, it wouldn't have occurred to them to reply February the 2nd, good neighbour. They would more probably have responded with Candlemas, Jäger, and Bugger, because that is how they talked, and they were used to reckoning by their old Christian festivals in that happy far-off time when there were no desk diaries or wall planners, though even then the precocious Flemish schoolboy P.P. Rubens may well have been making furtive sketches of sporty nudes in his exercise books in anticipation of the Playboy and Pirelli calendars. Not that everyone was backward and unlettered in good Queen Bessie's day, mind you. Sir John Harrington, for one, was a man of much learning and science, but since at the time our story opens he had just installed the world's first flush toilets in Her Majesty's Palace of Richmond— and the royal apartments were ankle-deep in water, with little Tudor plumbers going hairless, hammering pipes and crying, "'Good lack! And where's the stopcock, missus?' He had more to do than worry about what year it was. He plays no part in our tale, by the way, but has been introduced merely to provide a little period colour, like scenes and characters in the next couple of pages. Irrelevant they may be, but they are familiar, and therefore may be useful in evoking the spirit of the Elizabethan age, and letting the audience know what is going on behind the scenes of our tale. So, on that tempestuous night of February the 2nd, 1500 and something, when merry England was being sore buffeted by storm, 
and the plumbers were warning a distraught Sir John that he was flying in the face of nature and the union wouldn't let them mop up. In the mermaid smoker, two playwrights were engaged in a game of envious one-upmanship, with Marlowe snidely advising his rival to get out of drama and into poetry, because your Saturday morning serials are a real dead end. I mean, three parts of Henry the Sixth, for God's sake. People are beginning to ask, what next? Kemp and Summers meet Henry the Sixth? And Shakespeare was countering with backhanded compliments about Dr. Faustus. Love the costumes, Chris. While wondering if he dared hijack the character of the grizzled old fatso at the next table, who was being extremely coarse and funny, and didn't look like the kind who would sue. And at Richmond, Gloriana herself was standing for her portrait to Marcus Gerards the Younger, in a raging temper and a tent-like gown of cloth of gold with enormous winged sleeves, which she was convinced would make her look like a vulture about to take flight.